0: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19 talk radio twelve ten wphd wphd hd wogl hd3 philadelphia a radio.com station from the malamud and associates law studios it's time for the delaware valley's first radio doctor on call every sunday morning at 10 this is your radio doctor with dr marianne ritchie presented exclusively by independence blue cross listen seven months or ten months Is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
1: Good morning, and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. It's January, the beginning of a new year, new beginnings, a time to reflect on the past, and make plans to improve in the future. This month, we're going to focus on wellness and prevention. This is always a good way to start a new year, but especially now since COVID has caused so many Americans of all ages to delay or even stop receiving routine and preventive care. Here with us today is Dr. Katie Lockwood. She'll remind us how vitally important it is to bring your children in for their routine well visits and to keep up with their vaccinations. Dr. Lockwood is a clinical assistant professor of pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, also known as CHOP, primary care in South Philadelphia. And we are both graduates of Jefferson Medical College. Yahoo, black and blue. Welcome Katie, Mm -hmm. happy new year. We're so happy you're here today.
2: Thank you so much for having me and happy new year. Happy new year again.
1: So now it's the 21st century, and we have incredible technology that greatly improves our abilities to make a diagnosis more accurately and more quickly. But a really well-done history and physical exam remain our most valuable tool. So let's begin. Katie, why is it so important to maintain routine well visits, and what happens at a well visit?
2: That's such a great question and I think that for many adults we see going to the doctor as something we do when we're sick and we think that that's the only time we have to go to the doctor and although that's not true for adults either in pediatrics it's really important to go to the doctor even when you're well and so during these well visits or preventative care visits we do a lot of really important things so there are measurements of the child's growth we look at their development make sure they're hitting all their milestones that they're supposed to we do a lot of screening so blood work hearing and vision um, and as well as other screenings for things like depression and autism, and then vaccinations, as you mentioned. But one of the most important things I think that we do is also the anticipatory guidance that we give parents about what's coming next, because you can read all the books and look online, but parents are very busy, and it's really nice to hear from your pediatrician about what you should be expecting over the next few months in terms of your child's eating, their growth, activities to do with them, all of those things. So there's a lot that we pack into these well visits. So well said. And so
1: we use the word milestones even with adult medicine, but in children in particular, maybe we could explain to the audience what that means that maybe when, when should your infant begin to hold his or her head up or when the first steps should happen. And, and there's a range of normal. Tell us a little bit about those milestones.
2: Sure. Well, I didn't know there were milestones for adults, but I think about milestones for especially infants. You know, in the first year, there are a lot of these kind of key moments where children develop a certain skill. And what we look for is that kids are developing these skills in the right pattern that we expect at the right time. And everything is a little bit of a range. There might be, you know, a two month kind of window, but there's an expected time for things to happen. So for example, at two months old, we expect you to have a social smile at six months old. We expect you to be babbling at one year old. We want you to be walking or taking a step or two and then at two years old we want you to be combining words together making a little bit of a phrase and as long as kids are progressing as long as they're in the in the right window for when those milestones are happening we let things kind of go on their own we really worry though when kids aren't hitting their milestones or if they had one and then it stops happening, we call that a regression. So if you say, my child used to talk and now they don't talk anymore, that's a big red flag. And anytime there is you know failure to progress or a regression, that's a time when we wanna get other specialists involved. Sure,
1: and I think milestones in adults are probably in reverse. If I see somebody that has, say, diverticulitis and I treat them, then I say, you should expect this or that within the next week or two. So I guess that means I mm-hmm. walk backwards. But um, then we both know I remember, and we both went to Jefferson um, What we learned Mm -hmm. in medical school was Hippocratic facies Hippocrates would say, look at the person's face I as a GI doc might get called Mm -hmm. to the emergency room, there might be 10 people in different rooms with belly pain and I can look at each one and tell pretty quickly whether it's a belly that needs to go right to the operating room with an acute appendicitis or somebody just has a virus or somebody else might have an ovarian cyst so nonverbal cues the person's face do they say i'm in pain or i am in pain tell us a little bit about eye contact and those kind of things that you observe the child's interaction with their surroundings etc
2: Well, adult doctors always tell me, how do you know what's going on with your patient when some of them can't talk to you? Right. So for the first few years, we don't even have patients who are very reliable historians. They can't tell us much. So we rely on these visual cues very much. So we look at how the child is acting. Are they grimacing? Are they smiling? Are they fearful of the doctor or are they you know, interacting with us appropriately. We look at things like eye contact, which you mentioned in terms of their social skills. So children who are on the autism spectrum, um, they don't make great eye contact often. Uh, We also think about that in terms of fearfulness. So maybe a child who... Um, you know, is not making great eye contact with us, is afraid of us, and why might that be? And we look at the way that they play in the office. So, if I try to engage them in play, how do they respond? How do they respond if their parent engages them in play? And we can pick up a lot of information about how a child is feeling and their relationships just from those nonverbal cues. Sure.
1: And we can carry this into the next segment, but vital signs. We all get to the doctor and the office, the the nurse will take blood pressure, temperature. Tell us about measuring the temperature and how that helps you.
2: So we often rely on temperature. Kids will often spike a fever if they are sick. And so that's a really great hallmark for us. We ask parents to have a thermometer at home and we prefer a digital thermometer. Up until age three, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually recommends a rectal temperature, but you can also use under the arm or in the ear. Um, if you don't have a rectal thermometer at home and we consider anything in a newborn 100.4 or higher is considered a fever and then in older children we use 101 Um, and so we want parents to report those fevers to us so that we can make sure there's nothing serious going on. Let's take a little break. We're here with Dr. Katie Lockwood from CHOP and we'll talk more
1: about how to take a temperature properly and what else we can learn from respiratory rates. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Dr. Katie Lockwood from CHOP. Tell us, you were talking about the proper way to take a child's temperature at home, and then we'll talk about what you can learn from watching their breathing.
2: Right, so parents uh, often ask us about checking a temperature and the best way to do it. And so there are some guidelines about this. We recommend a digital thermometer and for newborns to three months old, we prefer a rectal temperature. So this is in your bottom. Uh, three months to three years, you should still do a rectal, but if you don't have that, then under the arm or in the ear um, is also a, an acceptable way. In a school-aged child, preschool and up, you can also then start putting it in their mouth and, again, under the arm or the ear, and that continues through um, all the way up. So oral, you don't want to put the thermometer in a child's mouth until they're about four because... You can't really trust that they're going to hold it in the right spot and sure. they might bite it or hurt themselves so that's why in the little ones we do it rectally mm-hmm. so if you walk into an exam
1: room and you talk to the mom or the caregiver and then you look at the child and they're breathing rapidly how do you determine whether mm-hmm. it's because they're anxious or because they have a fever well that would temp or mm-hmm. they're ready to go into an asthma attack tell us about that a little bit
2: So sometimes it's looking at whether or not they can be distracted from it because if a child is breathing fast because they're anxious, then you can usually distract them by talking about something else or playing with them and seeing how their breathing is in that setting. We often tell parents at home some of the things to look for are, are they using other muscles to help them breathe? So are their chest muscles moving? Are they flaring their nostrils? Sometimes you can see it kind of tugging in at their neck. And we call that work of breathing. And so someone who's breathing comfortably you almost can't tell that they're breathing. But when their respiratory rate is high, they often are using these other um, accessory muscles to help them breathe. And that can be a real red flag.
1: Right, brilliant way to explain that. And then finally, the measurements of height and weight can are always helpful for you. Yes, we're always looking at growth charts. So let's talk about other screenings that you do, a little more detail about screenings you do along the way in newborns and then labs along the way. Tell us about that if you would.
2: Sure, well all newborns are getting a newborn screen done in the hospital that looks for a number of different genetic conditions. Um, that can require some intervention. And so we follow those up in primary care pediatrics, make sure that the early newborn screening was normal. And then there are other screenings that we do along the way. So the most common ones that people have probably heard about are lead and anemia screening. So we do these routinely around nine months of age, and lead looking for environmental sources of lead that the child could have been exposed to. And then the hemoglobin is the screening that we use for anemia. And these these are all things that we do because there's something to do about it. We don't screen for things that we can't change, but these are things that if we find them, there are interventions that we can do to help improve the condition. Sure. And we had a very interesting chat the other day, and
1: I thank you for your time, that I say, well, gee, how would you suspect or be concerned about one child of another for lead poisoning or anemia? And you mentioned that if they're from a neighborhood where the houses are older, that that might be a mm-hmm. reason to check.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep, and if your house was built before 1978, the chances are that there could be lead in the paint. And even if it was painted over since then, if it wasn't done right or there's any chipped paint or paint dust, there can still be lead in it that children are exposed to when they're crawling around on the floor and putting toys in their mouths. Um, And so you really want to make sure that the house was remediated appropriately for lead, but also there can be construction dust from the environment mm-hmm. in your neighborhood. So I've had families who don't have any lead in their house, but they play at a playground next to a construction site and they pick up lead dust that way. And so it's really something to consider not only your house, but what neighborhood you live in, if there are any um, lead smelting you know, factories in that neighborhood a while ago. Sometimes it's just under the soil. And a little bit of a disturbance can kick that lead back up. Wow, that's fascinating. Good for
1: people to hear these things so they can look into it a little bit. And anemia means a low blood count. And that can be, as mm-hmm. you say, decreased access to good sources of food or healthy food. And, and maybe even, we didn't talk about mm-hmm. this, but celiac. Um, and then you're going to mm-hmm. check with for developmental milestones. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure.
2: So we do some developmental screenings at each visit, sometimes just by asking questions and observing the child, sometimes through some uh, screening tools where parents fill out a little questionnaire about what their child is doing. But we're making sure, again, that they're meeting all their milestones going in the right direction. And then certainly screening for autism, which we know is more and more common. And there are certain time intervals where we can screen for that and pick up these diagnoses early because with any developmental delay and autism included in that, early intervention is really the most important thing. So the sooner we can pick up these delays and we're trained to do that, we can help get children the help that they need to make some progress. Mm -hmm. And as you say, people are more aware of
1: it uh, and parents and caregivers, as you say, if you give anticipatory advice, then people know what to look for and be proactive. And then, of course, we worry about dental health and hearing and vision screening. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about those things.
2: Yeah, so we wanna make sure that kids have what we call a dental home, which is that they have a dentist who they see regularly. And so if they don't, we can help connect them to a dentist in their community. But we also teach about how to take care of your teeth because that is an important part of everyone's health. And we talk about fluoride. If there's not fluoride in your water, you can take a fluoride supplement. Um, but if there is fluoride in your water, then we recommend some exposure to fluorinated water throughout the day for children. And we can apply fluoride varnish in some cases if it's necessary. But wanting to make sure that children see a dentist, um, which is really the goal. And then hearing and vision, we do that, those screenings as well at our well visits. And we can pick up some things that are really subtle. And parents will often tell me, well, my child hears fine. But what we're looking for are those real subtle frequency um, defects. And teenagers, it could be from listening to music too loudly with their headphones. Mm-hmm. I know teenagers never do that. But <laughs> that can really cause some um, noise-induced hearing loss, and those are things that we can pick up with our screenings that parents may not be able to actually tell themselves because it, it seems so subtle, Yes, um, but it can have a big impact on them. And that's the magic
1: word, subtle. You know your child better than anyone else, but I remember we have our daughters, a big girl now, she's an adult, but when she was three and four years old, I thought I noticed that her one eye strayed a little bit, or strabismus, or people would call it a lazy mm-hmm. eye, I guess. and. I finally captured it one day. She happened to be looking up, and her eyes would go out in a V instead of straight up, and you're familiar with that. But I captured it in a Mm -hmm. picture, and I said, see. And then I took her, and sure enough, she needed a little minor surgery that corrected it. But, um, you know, she thinks it's... Mm Pretty cool that she had that. I don't think it's cool, but
2: yeah. And then when um, pictures are a great way to capture that, too, as you mentioned. I love it when parents bring us pictures and they'll say, Does this look abnormal to you? It's really helpful because you see them so often at home. You can often catch those things that are just really fleeting. Exactly. One picture, a thousand words. And then as children grow Mm -hmm. into
1: adolescence, it's it's a whole different plateau of concerns that you are aware of. And you have adolescent screenings. And tell us a little bit about that, if you would.
2: Sure. So with adolescents, we often do most of their screenings independently and let them talk for themselves and form that relationship with us, which is a really exciting time for them to take some ownership of their health. But we do a whole variety of screenings with um, adolescents, including things like depression screening, talking to them about substance abuse and sexual activity, but also positive things. So looking at what their strengths are, what their coping skills are, um, what kind of future plans they have. We talk about things like driving as well and doing some uh, anticipatory guidance about driving safety, which, um, you know, motor vehicle accidents are actually the number one cause of death for teenagers. And so it's a really important sure. topic that I think sometimes we forget about. And so all of those screenings get packed into the adolescent visit on top of a lot of the things that we've already talked about, too. And I like that you emphasize. and it's good for adults to
1: hear this, that when you can, you not sequester, but you try to talk to the patient on his own or her own so that if they might be a little shy to speak in front of their parent or their caregiver, they're going to say to you, yeah, I tried cigarettes. You know, I always have said that I think middle school is the boot camp for life because that's when people start to, mm-hmm. right, uh, girls and boys develop at a different mm-hmm. uh in a different spectrum of time and the more mature uh, boys and girls might behave differently than somebody who hasn't developed as quickly etc and I know with alcohol mm-hmm. I've been reading that sometimes you screen as early, or they try as early as nine years old can you tell us a little bit about the craft
2: screen so we talk to um, teenagers about whether or not they're using substances in a way that's unhealthy for them. So we want to make sure that they're, you know, we expect them to be doing a little bit of experimentation in adolescence. But we can, we can use tools like this to really make sure that they are not um, using alcohol or other substances in a way that's, that's dangerous or high risk and do some counseling around that so they understand what the risks
1: are. Perfect, and and I I love too that you say that you have this relationship and they trust you because if they're lucky, mm-hmm. they're going to have a doctor Lockwood in their lives from the time they're an infant till <laughs> what's what's a typical age when uh, your patients switch over to uh, maybe an internist Usually or about fam- twenty one. Yeah,
2: yeah, twenty one. Um, we'll we'll see you through college, uh, but then after that, they start to develop grown up issues, and so as you know, so it's a, it's a different field and so it's better for them to see an adult provider wonderful your, your advice is so sound katie let's take
1: a little break and we'll be right back with dr katie lockwood from Chalk.
0: today's edition of your radio doctor with dr marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by independence blue cross can be enjoyed on radio.com listen to the show at your convenience go to radio.com and in the search bar type in your radio doctor it's health education on demand
1: Welcome back. We're here today with Dr. Katie Lockwood talking about the value of routine well visits for pediatric patients from birth to age 21. But we spoke earlier about people of all ages delaying their routine care and cancer screenings. Uh, But as a pediatrician, you've seen a significant drop in critical childhood vaccinations during COVID, which could cause two issues. It decreases protection for the individual child, but we also are concerned about diminishing community protection against serious illnesses like measles and whooping cough. So tell us about that, if you would.
2: Yeah, this is a really important topic. I mean, during the pandemic, understandably, a lot of people stayed home initially, and that meant that they weren't going to the doctor and getting those immunizations. But we've been trying increasingly to get everyone to come back to care so that we can get those immunizations and all the other things that we've been talking about today uh, done. And Blue Cross Blue Shield actually published some of their data looking at immunization rates during the pandemic and saw that there was up to a 26% drop for immunizations like MMR, DTaP and polio when you look at January to September of 2020. And that's up to 9 million doses of these vaccines that could be missed last year. Um, And like you mentioned, this this worries us because it increases the risk of things that we could potentially see, like measles and whooping cough, because these still circulate in our community. They're not eradicated diseases, and that's why we immunize for them. And so as social distancing decreases and kids start seeing each other at school and going to play dates and parties happen again, we worry that... Even if we're not worried about COVID at that point, we may be worried about other outbreaks like measles. Right. And I know that that article also mentioned that probably
1: up to 40 percent of parents admit that their children have missed vaccines because of COVID. And as you said earlier, Mm -hmm. when we're talking about adults, hey, I feel fine. I don't need to see the doctor. But with children, it's even more important that we say, even though your child looks like he or she is growing and doing well, you cannot miss those uh, appointments or vaccinations. So tell us, if a child does have a lapse, say even six months or even March through December of 2020, you can catch mm-hmm. up with
2: vaccines. How do you approach that? Yeah, you certainly can catch up. There is a published catch-up schedule by the CDC that tells you sort of the minimal intervals that you can do vaccines Um, But you can always catch up uh, a dose later. So if you were supposed to, let's say, get your your measles vaccine at age four, and now your child is five, it's better late than never. You can always come in and get that uh, vaccine to get yourself caught up. And. As you mentioned, you know, this is important for the child themselves, but also for the community, mm-hmm. right? So when you think about things like whooping cough, um, you know, it's often the elderly or the very young who are the most at risk for some of these diseases. And so it's protecting your child. It's protecting, you know, grandma and grandpa. And it's protecting the people who are immunocompromised in the community. So it really has a benefit to everybody that we make sure that we maintain or aim towards getting some herd immunity for these diseases. Mm-hmm. And uh, just for our audience,
1: many people know what MMR covers, but MMR is mm-hmm. measles, mumps, and rubella. Am I right there?
2: Yep. And then and then DTAP is diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. Um, and so we really worry more about the pertussis part, which is whooping cough. Mm-hmm. Although diphtheria and tetanus are, are worrisome too. They're just not things that you get outbreaks of the way that we see pertussis. Um, but that's an important one. And they looked at polio in this study, too, which obviously we don't worry about in this country. But we are looking at it as one of those diseases that certainly if we drop below herd immunity, we don't want to see polio coming back. And so we're always keeping our close eye on that. Yeah. Too. And the last thing I, I like to... Uh, share with our listeners is
1: I know we just have one grandchild so far we have two on the way Yahoo but right before that Mm -hmm. um, the pediatrician my daughter saw the pediatrician and and and, um, you know her OB both reminded her please tell grandparents uh, aunts uncles anybody who's going to be visiting you or holding the baby to get their own tdap uh, updated and so right. for our listeners, if any of you are expecting new babies in your family, tell us a little about that, if you don't mind.
2: Yeah, definitely. And so even though I'm not an OBGYN, I'm always reminding um moms who come to me when they're pregnant, that they should have a Tdap with every pregnancy so they can see their OB. And that's because some of those antibodies from the Tdap uh, vaccine will go towards protecting their newborn until they're old enough to get their first Mm. DTaP immunization. So that's helpful. But also, like you mentioned, um, the DTaP antibodies or Tdap for the older folks they do wane over time. And so you lose some of that protection. And that's why when you step on a rusty nail, you go to the, the emergency room or you go to your doctor, right? And you get a tetanus booster. That's because those antibodies waned. And so when you're um, elderly, it's probably been many years since you had your last Tdap. And so if it's been more than ten. You want to go and make sure you get a, a, a Tdap booster before you're holding that grandbaby. And I also say the same thing for other care providers. So if, you, if you're if you hiring a nanny or you know a babysitter is going to be at your house with your newborn, exactly. make sure that they've gotten their Tdap too. Yes. And T for tetanus, D
1: for diphtheria, yep. and P for pertussis or whooping cough. So do you ever wake up and pinch yourself and say, I'm on staff at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia? (laughs) Uh, It has to be the number one children's hospital in the world, not just the country. I just think it's such a magical place. And fortunately, I haven't had to have my children there. But I remember I'm the youngest of four sisters. And my big sisters all said, we have 16 children on the four of us. They all said, make sure when you choose your pediatrician, and I had great ones, um, that they also have privileges to um, admit to children's if you're really, you know, have an unusual mm-hmm. condition. Tell us why you love working at Children's Hospital.
2: Oh, my gosh. I could do a whole segment on this because sure. I really I do feel very, very grateful to be at CHOP. And as you mentioned, you know, we just have a wealth of resources. There are so many smart people here and uh, so many different specialists that we have that are really rare and unique and and see diagnoses that uh, many people have never even heard of before. They can be almost commonplace at CHOP because people come from all over the world to get their care at CHOP, but at the same time we are a community hospital for Philadelphia, and there's nothing that we love more than just bread and butter pediatrics, and so sometimes people think, oh, I only have to go there if, you know, my child has something serious or rare um, and to get that specialty input, but really we're providing, you know, top-notch primary care as well. And the cool thing is that we have this network, right? So we have over 30 primary care sites spread across Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And then our specialists also have satellite sites, and I can't even name them all, but they're, you know, Brandywine, Voorhees, um, King of Prussia, chalfont they're all over the place. Seeing, um, you know, and providing specialty care, even some surgical care at some of these satellites. And then, of course, we're building a new hospital in King of Prussia, um, which will have an emergency room and some inpatient beds. So we are really serving this, you know, big network in the Philadelphia area. And what I always tell my patients is that the nice thing about having a network like that is that anywhere you go that has that CHOP logo on it, will be able to see your records from any other CHOP site. And so, you know, we are all working together as a team and coordinating this care.
1: Well, I know another thing I always share with my friends uh, or you know, back when we were new mothers was that if your child ever does need surgery, say tubes in their ears, you know, something that seems mm-hmm. everydayish, But the important thing is that their anesthesia is given by a pediatric anesthesiologist. Now, if you're in an emergency in a place that doesn't have a children's hospital, or but, but we have the luxury of living close to CHOP. So I try to remind my patients or friends if they have grandchildren that try to look into that if they're gonna have an elective procedure, don't you think?
2: So true, I mean, we say all the time in pediatrics that kids are not little adults. It's just, I can't say it enough. And so there is a real benefit. You know, people sometimes will say, um, you know, well, my kid has, you know, a hurt ankle and they have to go get an x-ray. And they say, can I just go to that, you know, little hospital down the street? And I say, sure, you could. But there is just so much benefit from having a pediatric radiologist read that x-ray because they're trained in looking at kids' bones, which are different than adult bones, right? They have growth plates where they're still growing that don't even exist in adults. And so you really want somebody, whenever you're picking a doctor for anything, you want somebody who does the thing that you are there for all the time, right? You get better with experience and practice. And so having a pediatric specialist who does nothing but see kids with this condition is only going to benefit your child. Exactly, and I always
1: say that to people, You know, again, we we are so lucky to live in Philadelphia, which has has so many brain trusts. I mean, even my own GI group, we have Mm -hmm. over 40 GI docs. We have four people who do liver disease all day, every day. We have four docs who do pancreatic issues, and it's so nuanced, and boy, what a gift to to work with such great Mm -hmm. people. Let's take a little break, and we'll come back to talk a little bit more with Dr. Katie Lockwood from CHOP. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. So in our final segment, Katie, tell us... What is CHOP, or Children's Hospital Philadelphia, doing to keep children safe when they come for their preventive care visits and, and their vaccinations?
2: Yeah, this is a great question because I know so many parents are worried about coming into the doctor right now. They're afraid that they're going to bring their healthy child there and expose them to COVID-19, and I understand that concern as a parent. But I have to say, I've never felt safer going to work right now. We are doing so many things to help keep well kids well. Uh, So one of the things we're doing is just separating well and sick kids in the physical space of our office. So we're keeping the well kids in one side or one group of rooms and the sick kids in another side. We're doing a lot of screening before kids even get to the office. So we're asking you know, questionnaires and screenings to see what people's risk of COVID might be so that we can make sure we see them at the right time and place and keep them separated. Um, We're also asking everyone to wear a mask. So anyone over the age of two who comes to our office should be wearing a mask. And then all of our providers and staff are wearing masks. We're also wearing goggles and gloves uh, when we're seeing your your child in the office, and so all of these things together are really keeping everybody safe i mean obviously hand washing and staying home um, as providers when we're sick, and all of those things to help keep uh, families safe and i I've heard from a lot of families in clinic when i'm seeing them they'll say i was really scared to come today but then i got here and felt so much safer well
1: you know you make a good point i i mean we always wash our hands but i now when i see patients in the office i say oh let me wash my hands and let me put the gloves on and let mm-hmm. me wash them and i clean my stethoscope with alcohol in front of the patient so they're reassured hey mm-hmm. this is part of dr ritchie's mantra and the other wonderful thing i heard you say was that you have a designated provider for possible COVID patients on a particular day. So you're not going from a well child to a COVID um, uh, child. And uh, you really, it's right. brilliant, the things you've told me about. So tell us about telehealth. What diagnoses are best to follow with telehealth? Because that's a way of keeping people uh, you know, less exposed.
2: Yep. Telehealth has really been a hero in this mm-hmm. pandemic for us to try to, you know, see some patients who maybe couldn't come to the office or, or it was not necessary for them to come to the office. And so we can do a lot of things via telehealth, but some of the easiest are behavioral health concerns. So I've been seeing a lot of my patients with ADHD or just the rising mental health, um, you know, conditions during the pandemic. We're seeing more anxiety and depression, and we can do a lot of that by telehealth. The other thing is, That we have an online patient portal uh, in addition to the video visit, but parents can just submit pictures um, and communicate with us that way. So we can handle a lot of things through our electronic um, online portal as well as telehealth.
1: Well, and we mentioned earlier that nonverbal cues are so important. And sometimes you probably Mm -hmm. get even different or better information in terms of behavior when you see that little boy or girl. Um, behaving in their own environment, in their home environment? How do they interact with the doggy or their brother or sister that you might not pick up in the office? Katie, lots of people would love to see you. How would they reach you if they want to be your patient or if they want to come to CHOP? Or And, and the other thing is an emergency line if they really need to come to your emergency room.
2: Sure. So the best way to reach anyone at CHOP is to call one 800 try. CHOP. So T R Y C H O P, and they will direct you to wherever you need to go. And physicians can call that line too for a consult um, from some of our specialists. So 1 800 TriChop is the best way to go. If anyone wanted to see me, I'm in the South Philly office, and they certainly can look that up online too. Um, but the best one stop shop is 1 800 TriChop. And where's the South Philly office? We're at um, Broad and Morris. Oh, good to know in South
1: Philadelphia. Yep, it's a great site. Katie, you have shared so much wonderful information for parents, caregivers and, and even older children and uh and uh people reaching 21. Thank you. You were a wonderful guest and we're going to have you back in the near future.
2: Thank you so much for having me today. Wonderful. Happy New Year again. Take care. Stay well. Thank you you too.
1: time for Your Real Champion, Mark Winneker. I call this segment The Lion's Share. Every week we hear about a real champion and the stories get better and better. Let me tell you about Mark Winneker. Mark served in the U.S. Postal Service for 39 years and loved every minute of it. His dedication and professionalism led him from a local route to a regional position and finally a leadership role at 30th Street in the City of Philadelphia office. He had the perfect upbeat disposition for the job. His wife explains that when Mark delivered the mail, he had a small transistor radio attached to his mailbag so he could sing during the entire route. Mark says, if you're happy, people around are happy. And if you're not happy, people around you are twice as unhappy. Mark has lived that philosophy for his entire life, bringing happiness to the people around him. Starting at the age of 14, Mark was a regular volunteer at the Moss Rehab Hospital all through high school. He spent years as a big brother. For the past 25 years, he's been a very active member of the Lions Club. This is a service organization that has many projects, including food drives, diaper drives, giving gift cards, hearing aids, eye exams, fittings for eyeglasses but the big project they do each year in his area is Breakfast with Santa. Mark, of course, is the main organizer, and the Ben Salem High School cafeteria opens on the first Sunday in December, and the Lions Club provides pancakes, sausage, and a visit with Santa for over 2,000 people. There's music, dancing, characters, and every child gets a toy and a book. It takes months to prepare. For Mark, Santa is a personal friend. I said, Mark, I bet you delivered thousands of letters to Santa. Mark chimed, you know, the Lions put a mailbox in the Ben Salem High School which receives letters to Santa. Now the story gets interesting because Mark found his perfect match. His wife Sharon is every bit as devoted. It's Sharon who answers over 400 letters to Santa every year. It's Sharon who buys all the toys for the children who come to the Santa breakfast. And it's Sharon who learns what a needed child longs for and makes the wish come true. Sharon told me of a little girl who longed for a Barbie doll at Christmas. Her mother could only afford an imitation Barbie from the dollar store. Sharon found the mom at the Santa breakfast and gave her a wrapped Barbie to put under the tree on Christmas Day. The mom accepted the precious Barbie, tucked her inside her coat, and left the breakfast in tears. But wait, there's more. Until COVID struck, this dynamic duo volunteered as Bumper Tea Clowns at St. Mary's Hospital in Langhorne, as Dr. a Smile and Dr. Boo Boo Fixer. Not sure where they find the time, but Mark is also a volunteer fireman, and for six years he's been the president of the Bucks County Association for the Blind. And Sharon's helping with both. Well, their life of service has certainly made an impression. Their son is the sergeant for the Ben Salem Police Department, and their daughter is a schoolteacher. His son-in-law drives the fire engine with Santa through the neighborhoods. You can hear the pride in his voice when Mark explains that as members of the Department of Public Safety, he is a fireman and his son, the police officer, work together to fill 400 food baskets yearly for the needy in their area. Even Mark and Sharon's grandchildren volunteer. And the pandemic? What pandemic? It doesn't hold this lead guitarist back. Mark uses his lockdown time to take online lessons from Johns Hopkins and Harvard so he's ready to join his blues band again when COVID leaves town. We salute you, Mark and Sharon Winokur. They each have done a lion's share. You're real champions. Learn how you can help. Visit the Facebook page of the Ben Salem Lions Club. Thanks for listening today. Tune in next week and hear about the importance of yearly visits with your family doctor and the great work of a doctor helping the underserved and immigrants. And while you think about this year's New Year's resolutions, why not put this at the top of your list? I promise to take care of my health. Book your annual physical, schedule your screenings for cancers, and get your blood tests. Listen to all of our shows on YourRadioDoctor.net. Send us your story of a real champion to info at yourradiodoctor.net. And now, while you take those decorations down, listen to the sounds of Sinatra. It will make the work more fun. And always remember that your health is your wealth.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media Production.